I'm Scott Aniel, and you're listening to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. We truly are living increasingly in what many are calling a post-Christian culture, and Christians struggle with how to respond to the increasing loss of Christian values in the West and even the increasing anti-Christian sentiments that seem to be growing in our culture day by day. One of the things that will help us to respond is to understand what led to the decline of Christianity in the West. For many years, Christian values did permeate Western civilization, largely due to the union of church and state that began in the 4th century. Many factors gradually led to the end of this church-state union of what's sometimes called Christendom in the West, and several of these, ironically, came actually as a result of the dominance of Christianity. The 15th century Renaissance, for example, which emphasized classical learning rooted in the original sources, flourished among Christian theologians, but it also began to dismantle unilateral control of the church. The quick impact of the Reformation also could have only happened because Christianity was such a central part of society. Most people already believed in the reality of God and the Bible and his divine revelation, and once the scripture was translated into the language of the people, these underlying assumptions provided the fertile ground for Protestant theologians to argue their reforms. In a similar way, even advancements in science in the 16th and 17th centuries, beginning with the Copernican Revolution in 1543, and culminating with Isaac Newton's discoveries, arose out of Christian curiosity to truly know God and what he has made. Each of these movements, the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Scientific Revolution, were for the most part thoroughly Christian at their core. And yet, they each also contributed to the weakening of Christianity's influence in Western civilization. For example, the 17th century scientific revolution inevitably led to skepticism toward anything that could not be proven through human reason, including anything supernatural. For instance, philosophers such as René Descartes provided a philosophical framework for the natural sciences rooted in independent human reason, which effectually divorced reason and faith. Descartes' most famous maxim, I think, therefore I am, centered the foundation for knowledge in the self rather than divine revelation and began a shift in what constitutes the final authority for understanding the world from faith in God's divine revelation to human reason. Whereas centuries earlier, Augustine had said, believe so that you may understand, Descartes made understanding primary. Locke, on the other hand, valued empirical perception through the senses as necessary for human understanding. And so all truth must be established on the basis of something like the scientific method of observation and testing. Because of this, reason alone became the basis for truth and morality. This elevation of reason and science over faith, sometimes called the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason, was, in the words of Abraham Kuyper later, the expulsion of God from practical and theoretical life. I think Rod Dreher describes it well when he says that it was the decisive break with the Christian legacy of the West. The position that the church had enjoyed as the dominant influence over all of culture in the West was over. Reason was now in control. 
and a purely secular culture began to emerge for the first time in Western civilization, leading to German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche proclaiming in 1882, God is dead. So as we think about how philosophical changes in the West impacted the worldview and the theology and ultimately the broader culture as well as the church, it's important to consider the relationship between reason and faith for Christians before the Enlightenment and then after. What happened as a result of the Enlightenment was a complete redefinition of both reason and faith based on changes in fundamental worldview assumptions, significantly impacting Christian theology and changing the relationship of Christianity to the broader culture. The elevation of reason over faith in the 18th century took two general forms. First, pure naturalists relied upon reason as the ultimate authority by which all things must be judged. In other words, naturalists will not consider rational any notion that allows for the supernatural or otherwise contradicts the fundamental assumptions of naturalism. But similarly, empiricists insisted that an idea must have some sort of empirical evidence in order for it to be considered reasonable. In both of those cases, naturalists or empiricists defined reason on the basis of their foundational assumptions, which assumes reason as its own self-evident authority. Previously, Christian theologians defined reason differently, not considering reason to be the ultimate and independent authority. For Christians, God's revelation is the supreme authority by which all things must be judged. This doesn't mean Christians rejected reason prior to the Enlightenment. Rather, Christians acknowledged reason as a God-given tool that allows people, by employing various laws of logic, to judge whether or not a notion corresponds to reality, that is, whether or not it is true. The definition of faith also hinges upon whether one presupposes naturalist or empiricist principles or the truth and authority of God's revelation. For example, naturalists might define faith as believing in spite of evidence to the contrary. Their definition of reason is constrained by their underlying assumption that immaterial reality is an impossibility. But in contrast, faith defined biblically, according to Hebrews chapter 11, is belief in what is not seen. That is, belief in that for which there is no empirical proof. For example, Hebrews 11.8 says that Abraham believed and obeyed God even though he did not know where he was going. He believed without empirical proof, but it was perfectly reasonable for him to believe God if reason is defined as a faculty of human cognition that allows a person to judge whether something is true or dependable. Defining reason and faith in these ways should make determining their relationship simple for Christians. Just as naturalists and empiricists root their understanding of those terms in naturalist and empiricist presuppositions, so Christians understand their relationship based on revelation concerning the reality of God and his creation. Christians understand, that's reason, by faith, according to Hebrews 11.3. God created the universe and everything in it, 
And this includes both what is material and immaterial. He rules all things in his universe and in him all things hold together. All things exist and function on the basis of God's creation and rule of all things. These truths alone implicitly assure the absolute reasonableness of the Christian faith. If reason is that faculty by which a person determines whether an idea corresponds with reality, and if God is the creator and ruler of reality, then all that God has said is self-attestingly reasonable. There may be no apparent empirical evidence for every Christian belief, and a Christian may not understand the reasonableness of every biblical claim, but we can be assured that our faith is indeed reasonable because of the impossibility of the contrary in God's world. In fact, unbelief, whether naturalist or empiricist, is inherently irrational. Because God created all things, and because all people are made in his image, God has already revealed himself to all people. All people know God, according to Romans 1. The reasons for God are plain, and all people clearly perceive this evidence of the existence of God. Reason leads to belief in these things, for the very laws of logic themselves depend for their existence upon the reality of the Christian God. Yet all people suffer, according to Romans 1, the effects of sin. And so all people suppress this plain knowledge of true reality. All people are born doubting what is self-evident and rational. And so we Christians can assume the reasonableness of our faith as self-evident. For Christians, reason is not the foundation or source of faith, but rather reason is an instrument of faith. This is an important distinction that can give Christians confidence that what we believe is true, but that also ensures that we honor the Lord as holy, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3.13. We affirm the supreme authority of God's revelation in our thinking and consequently our entire lives. The problem is that as naturalist and empiricist philosophy began to quickly spread in the West, first among the elite and eventually to the public largely through culture, the ultimate result of these philosophical shifts was a fundamental change in the worldview of Western people from what is sometimes called realism to nominalism, which denies transcendent reality and intrinsic meaning. Ultimate reality exists in what can be experienced with the physical senses. People in the 18th century didn't throw away any conception of God immediately. Changes in philosophy and culture as quickly as they did occur during this period don't happen overnight. But a new theology began to emerge as a result of a change in worldview. This theology first affirmed the existence of a creator God, but one who had not revealed himself to humanity or had any contact with them combination of a nominalist worldview with this new theology created the religion of deism, a drastic secularized understanding of the relationship between God and man. Most of the founding fathers of America were deists. And then while early enlightenment philosophers were deists, affirming the existence but impersonality of God, by the 19th century, the dominant worldview shifted to pure materialism. The rational basis 
for explaining the world in purely natural terms without a need to acknowledge a creator was Charles Darwin's 1859 The Origin of Species. Man was now understood to be a machine, his actions the product of chemical reactions with no inherent morality or value at all. This naturalist evolutionary explanation also spread to other philosophical disciplines such as anthropology and its insistence upon the value-free nature of culture. For example, the father of British anthropology, Edward Tyler, applied Darwin's evolutionary theories to the way people behave in societies, and he formulated a conception of the idea of culture that continues to this day. Even religion in this theory is merely one aspect of culture that has simply evolved in human societies. What these developments have created in the West is essentially a new religion a secular religion dominated by the central doctrine of pluralism. D.A. Carson defines pluralism well when he says, any notion that a particular ideological or religious claim is intrinsically superior to another is necessarily wrong in pluralism. The only absolute creed is the creed of pluralism. No religion has the right to pronounce itself right or true and the others false, or even, in the majority view, relatively inferior. And then a final essential component of the secular religion of our day is pragmatism, the first distinctly American school of philosophy formulated by John Dewey, William James, and John Sanders Peirce. Peirce succinctly articulated the core of pragmatism. He said, consider the practical effects of the objects of your conception. Then your conception of those effects is the whole of your conception of the object. These philosophers wanted to bring the success of scientific problem-solving to other realms of life, and so what answers practical needs becomes the most important. William James defined truth on the basis of what has, quote, cash value in experiential terms. He argued, true ideas are those that we can assimilate, validate, corroborate, and verify. False ideas are those that we cannot. John Dewey, whose influence in America spans from education to politics to art, believed that practical answers to real problems were more important than theoretical contemplation. Experience is ultimate, because only through testing what works can we come to know what is true. Since only the natural world exists, and so there are no transcendent universal moral principles, the end justifies the means in the secular religion. This is the religious environment that Christians now face in the West. But the problem is that Christians haven't always recognized these emerging values and assumptions, and so often Christians have unknowingly adopted these ideas as they embrace what they consider to be the neutral aspects of secular culture. In short, many Christians don't recognize secularism to be the religion that it is. As Rod Dreher noted, instead of recognizing and resisting the increasing secularization of the West, many Christians succumb to it, having placed, quote, unwarranted confidence in the health of our religious institutions. Dreher offers solutions in his writings, not just because the culture is so bad, but because Western Christianity has adopted so much of this secularist religion. 
He says, the changes that have overtaken the West in modern times have revolutionized everything, even the church, which no longer forms souls, but caters to selves. Unfortunately, what has happened to much of evangelical Christianity can be assessed as nothing short of worldliness, which is how John MacArthur described the church's embrace of pragmatism. He noted in his book, Ashamed of the Gospel, modernists gained ground early and easily among evangelicals by decrying the importance of doctrine, which was deemed divisive and unnecessarily pedantic, while championing the importance of charity and good works. The result, according to MacArthur, today more than ever, evangelical church leaders are held captive to the notion that their main duty toward the world is to study the trends of popular culture and try desperately to get on every passing bandwagon as quickly as possible. We Christians today need to recognize the secular worldview that is surrounding us and resist it, striving to be biblically faithful and holy in all that we do. Only then will we be pleasing to God as we seek to obey Him in our lives, in our church ministries, and in our worship. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.